The weather is lovely today. A wife sits next to her husband in a Civil War era horse-drawn wagon. She looks out at the scenic West Virginia landscape. A cool breeze whispers through her hair. The sun shines. It's a perfect day. A young child whines from the back. Are we there yet? We're almost there. You'll see. The father responds sternly. The wagon suddenly turns down an expansive road. As they see their destination, their breath is taken away. In front of them looms the largest edifice any one of them has ever seen. A massive Gothic structure towers out over the idyllic landscape like a castle. The wife wonders aloud what this place could possibly be. The husband smiles. It's a surprise. They trot up onto the circular driveway where a doctor and several attendant nurses wait for them expectantly. The husband and wife descend from the wagon. A doctor and several nurses warmly approach the arrivals. He turns to the wife. Welcome. You're our first patient. The wife snaps her head to her husband. Patient? The husband keeps his eyes on the doctor. We're having domestic trouble, he explains. The doctor nods, understandingly. The doctor tries to appease her. The word patient is just semantics. This is a facility to provide relaxation and rehabilitation from society's ills. The woman insists she does not need rehabilitation. Ma'am, the doctor interjects politely, wait until you see our grounds. Beautiful. You'll feel better in no time. She insists she feels fine. Desperation creeping into her voice. The doctor ignores her inquiring as to whether she's heard of the Kirkwood design. The woman shakes her head, no. He gestures behind him at the imposing facade and explains that the building is shaped like the wings of a bat, elongated to maximize the daily sunlight. This is designed to promote feelings of calm and happiness and innovation in the architectural field. The woman turns and faces her new home. The dark stone does not seem particularly welcoming. I want to go home, she pleads. You're staying here. The doctor's voice is stern. The fresh air will do you good. The woman can intuitively sense what so many will come to know. That once you go into this place, you never come out. She turns to comfort her child and insists she'll just be gone for the weekend. The husband yanks the child toward him and walks back toward the wagon. The doctor and nurses grab the woman's hands, steering her into her new home, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. She begs and pleads for them to let her go. They drag her across the gravel like a rag doll. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. 
Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me at one of America's hotbeds of paranormal activity, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum in West Virginia. To this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. The first patient at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum was indeed a woman dumped by her family there when it opened in 1864 for domestic trouble. And while there were genuinely unhinged people who were brought to stay here, people we would classify as deranged or insane today, many more were brought in for issues like jealousy, overzealous political enthusiasm, and religious fervor. Even, quote, menstrual derangement could land you in here. Someone was even committed for reading a novel. In short, the asylum became an unwilling home of the powerless and disenfranchised, those without a voice. The asylum closed as a mental health facility in 1994 and has since fascinated the nation with its extensive reports of paranormal activity. And the ghosts encountered are all suffering spirits. Spirits trying to break free from their torture. Is it any coincidence that the history of the asylum is one of mistreatment, misconduct, and sadistic experiments? Originally built to house 250 patients, by the 1950s, there were over 2,400 people living in squalor. The overcrowding led to slum-like conditions, poor sanitation, not enough furniture. Even if you weren't insane when you arrived, chances were you'd be driven out of your mind soon enough. Perhaps the asylum's very existence asks us, are we all a little crazy. Welcome, everybody. Our friendly tour guide greets me and my friend Kevin outside the lunatic asylum on a brisk night in October. We're here to see what all the fuss is about. This nightmarish, imposing building that people love to walk around at night. Tours are given almost year-round these days at Trans-Allegheny and have been in operation since 2007. Tourism was the final verdict after the state couldn't decide whether to turn the building into a hotel, a Civil War museum, or a golf course after the asylum closed down. Our tour guide may be warm and approachable, but her appearance is anything but. Her Halloween contacts have rendered her pupils a haunting, dead-eyed black. Fake blood drips out of the corner of her mouth. I know it's all pretend, 
but it makes me uneasy nonetheless. Everybody scared? She asks, grinning like the Cheshire Cat. (laughs) Of course not. I try to laugh flippantly. There are children running around. A food truck is selling funnel cakes. There's nothing to be scared of. Her peppy demeanor belies something sinister at this place. I feel like someone is watching me. And not one of the living. Something unseen lurking in the shadows. I pull my scarf tighter around me. I'm happy to be going inside, even though the presence of the building itself is almost overwhelming. It's hard to imagine what people must have thought when they saw this in the middle of nowhere West Virginia during the 19th century. This was a fortress, a prison, sprouting out of nowhere amongst the scenic hills. Our guide walks us past the fountain and the rounded driveway to the daunting monolith itself. Huge, right? It's the largest hand-cut masonry building in all of North America. The only hand-cut masonry structure that's bigger is the Kremlin in Moscow. I believe it. And it just happens to be built on 666 acres. Boo! A young girl dressed like a devil jumps out in front of me, giving me the start of my life. I laugh nervously as her mother apologetically pulls her back toward their group. Don't worry, our guide smirks. That should be the scariest thing you see all night. I tried to hide my fear with a nervous smile. The people don't seem to sense what I do. Something ominous, something in tremendous agony lies in wait. Our guide points out gargoyle-like faces carved around the building. Mostly Irish workers built this place. They chiseled those things into the stone so they would ward off evil spirits. I involuntarily shudder. I'm not sure it's working, I whisper to Kevin, who shrugs nonchalantly. I'm clearly the only one spooked before we walk in the building. Her eyes light up as she details some of the more sinister facts of the building. You know, Charles Manson was once institutionalized here, right? She looks back at us mischievously. And he wasn't even close to the worst-behaved person behind these walls. We step inside the massive entrance. Nothing has changed about this place since its closure. The pipes are exposed, rusting. The paint peels off the walls. It's almost impossible to see anything. The light bulbs are dim and sparse. Let's go this way. She takes us down, a few turns away from some of the other groups, so we're not all clustered together. A more intimate experience. We'll start in the basement, she winks at us, letting us know we're in for a terrifying treat. Suddenly, though, her smile stops as she looks past our shoulders. Mildly panicking, I turn around, too. 
relieved to see nothing out of the ordinary. How did we lose him already? Our guide furrows her brow. Ugh, people always wander off. Who? Kevin asks. You know, your other friend. Her voice grows shaky as she sees our confused expressions. The one who's been with you this whole time? Kevin and I stare at her. It's always been just the two of us, Kevin finally manages to say. The three of us stand in stunned silence, hairs standing up in our arms, a chill creeping down our spines. We look around slowly. We're the only ones in this desolate corridor. Must be the zombie contacts. Our guide tries to shrug it off. Yeah, we all lie to ourselves. We continue walking, none of us willing to give up our tour, but deeply rattled by what just happened. Who was with us? Suddenly our confident guide seems just as terrified as I've been this entire time. This is not a reassuring development. Here we are! She tries to put some levity in her voice. We peer behind her at a dark staircase leading down to somewhere we can't see. It's unclear why anyone would want to descend into that unholy darkness. Uh, what's down here to see? I ask, making sure this is going to be worth our while. I'm going to show you where a body was found. She speaks quietly now, as if the body and the murderer might still be there. One of the nurses, Elizabeth, was killed, stabbed by a psychotic patient, and her body was down here for 60 days before it was discovered, rotting, decomposing. It's freezing in the basement. When we get to the bottom of the stairs, we are overwhelmed by a foul, decaying smell. The smell becomes so noxious, I can barely breathe. I try to see where the offensive odor is coming from, but the room is completely empty. I can see her body, Kevin says hollowly, as if in a trance. I spin around. Suddenly, a glowing, decomposing apparition appears under the staircase. Our guide splits faster than we do. We frantically follow her. You guys want to wrap this up. It's more of a statement than a question. She doesn't have to ask us twice. All I want to do is be as far from this horror house as possible. We quickly make our way down the hallway. Go fast past the stretcher room, she orders us. Don't want to mess with Ruth. Neither do we. We pick up the pace. Kevin falls on his face. I turn and see Kevin literally being dragged back into the depths of the shadowy hallway by an unseen force. It's Ruth. I'm confused. I, I don't see anyone. The meanest old ghost of all of them. She hates men. We rush back and yank Kevin forward. But Ruth doesn't want to give up so easily. 
We pull Kevin to his feet, trying to get away from the stretcher room as quickly as possible. But as soon as we wrest Kevin free, our guide's hands are around her neck. Her eyes are bulging, as if she's being strangled. But nobody's there. Help, she whispers. Kevin and I try to pull her free from whatever has its hands wrapped around her neck. It takes all of our strength. Get out. A demonic voice is clear. We don't need to be told twice. We run as fast as possible, gasping for breath. Finally, we burst out onto the lawn, running through the grass, collapsing. I'll never step foot in there again. Numerous accounts just like these have been reported by employees and visitors alike. Stories of aggressive, hostile entities pulling and pushing them, grabbing at them. Noxious, decaying smells in rooms where nothing exists and extra visitors who disappear, tricking all who see them into believing that they're just another tourist here for a fright. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Haunted Places. As a warning to our listeners, the following story includes a depiction of rape that some may find offensive or upsetting. It's a cold night in West Virginia, 1863. Young Gladys Ravensfield prepares herself a cup of tea. Gladys peers out of her kitchen window. It's pitch black. She can't see anything through that downpour. No moonlight. No stars. Anything alive out there is hidden. She shudders and pulls her shawl closer around her. Who would be out there on such a night anyway? Gladys curls up into her settee and warms herself by the fire. She pulls out her knitting and settles in for another night alone. Brow furrowed. She hates these long, lonesome nights. But what else can she do during these uncertain times of the War of Southern Rebellion? Gladys's husband has abandoned her. Maybe he was killed in the war. Maybe he deserted. Maybe he never joined the war in the first place. But she hasn't heard news of him in so long that she started to forget the shape of his face, how he smells. Each night, she waits for him to come home. She keeps the fire burning. So if he's out there, Gladys jumps. It could be him. And suffering in this rain, she slides her cold feet into her slippers and patters over to the door. Evening, ma'am. Gladys stands face to face with a group of soldiers. It's dark but she counts five or six. She instinctively starts to close the door. Don't be frightened. We're not going to hurt you. The man smiles. Gladys sees he's missing a tooth. 
His gums are black and rotten. She tries to hide her disgust and smiles politely. May we come in? I'm sorry, it's late. She moves to close the door. Another man steps forward. He has a bulbous nose and a scar along the side of his face. Are you here all alone? His eyes menacing like a jackal. Gladys nervously looks behind her. Um, the men suddenly barge past Gladys and push their way into the house. The men beat Gladys, raped her, and robbed her of every last one of her valuables. Gladys never recovered from the traumatic event. Her husband never came for her, and she was abandoned by the world. Eventually, she was dumped into the lunatic asylum, where she lived until she died. Once she was inside the Trans-Allegheny, Gladys slipped deeper and deeper into madness. As if she had not suffered enough, one of Gladys's rapists impregnated her. She had the baby inside the walls of Trans-Allegheny and the staff named her Lily. The staff even set up a room for her, filled with her favorite toys and candy. She reportedly had quite the sweet tooth. Some say Gladys barely noticed the child. Some say she wanted to care for her, but was never capable of doing so. And those reports also say that because she was the result of a rape, Lily was never fostered or adopted becoming an inmate herself, playing all on her own. But the most commonly believed story is that Lily died shortly after she was born, possibly even just several hours later. And yet, Lily is the most popular ghost at Trans-Allegheny, and by far the most frequently sighted. Lily is known as a happy girl, she looks to be about four years old. She's often spotted slipping her cold hand onto the hand of a visiting female tourist. But the mystery remains surrounding how long Lily was alive at the asylum. Did she age once she became a ghost? And if so, why did she only age to about four? Or was she actually a child raised by the staff? Considering the overpopulation of the facility and the grueling nature of the work, it seems unlikely the staff would have had time to raise an infant. Did she simply remain on the grounds in a disembodied form to comfort her mother? Perhaps Gladys could see her daughter in her condition, having become so untethered to this dimension, and she wanted to give her mother some joy in her wretched miserable life. Only Lily can let us know. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. Now, our story continues. You've been sent to Ward 2. It's a general purpose ward because your symptoms are general. Nervous depressed. 
Your family didn't know what to do with you, but you're no psychopath. You just fall into the general category of too difficult for the real world. But you don't want to be here. This place is only making matters worse. Time drags on. You only have more time to sit with your scattered thoughts. Your fears are only exacerbated. There are too many people here, cramped together. They scratch. They itch. Sometimes they bite. Everyone is looking over their shoulder, thinking someone is out to get them. And sometimes they're right. You've noticed that other people stare at you. It only makes you more paranoid. You weren't this paranoid when you were outside. No. Everyone rocking, shaking, talking to themselves. It only agitates you further. You like Dean, though, another Ward 2 resident. He's quiet and keeps to himself. Sometimes he has outbursts. But everyone does here. You and Dean smile at each other. And that's about as much friendship as anyone gets in this hellhole. And if you attract too much attention, you'll be the subject to one of the therapies. So you try to go undetected. You had one shock therapy, and your brain hasn't been the same since. You can endure the cold water baths that you're all subjected to better than most. But shock therapy is something you never want to experience again. Most days you watch a mouse scurry from corner to corner. Is he looking for a crumb or a way out? You envy that mouse. He has no idea where he is. The people you don't like are the mean ones. Some days it seems like everyone's mean here, but some are meaner than others. They terrify you. You just want to be left alone, to disappear. One evening, you hear a commotion. You tiptoe down the hall and see two inmates of Ward 2 badgering and slapping Dean. You can't hear what they're saying, but they're taunting Dean. You know those men. They're bullies. The resident thugs in the ward. And Dean is easy to pick on. Timid. Skittish. You wish you could do something, but you're scared too. The two men overpower Dean, shoving him against the wall, encircling him. He protests, yelling, but they cover his mouth. He's no match for them. You look around for a nurse, but all you see is a fellow patient pulling desperately at his hair, lost in some traumatic reverie. Another man behind him appears to have just returned from an ice pit lobotomy. He's drooling and staring vacantly at the wall. Your head throbs. Since the therapy, you haven't been able to think straight. Who's in charge? Patients and nurses seem angry, irritable. It's sometimes hard to distinguish between them anymore. You don't know who is here to help. 
and who will just wind up screaming in your face. You whirl back toward Dean and see him being dragged, his legs disappearing in a bedroom a few doors down. You scream for help. You're screaming at the top of your lungs. No one responds. No one cares. You're just another addled fool who everyone ignores. Desperate, you stumble down the hall after Dean. The hall widens and stretches as if you're in a funhouse. You want to stop to rest, but you have to save Dean. You use your hands to carefully feel your way down the corridor. When you arrive, you see that they have fashioned a makeshift noose out of the bedsheets. They try to string Dean up, but he's fighting like mad. It's clear they didn't tie the knots correctly. Dean is too heavy for their makeshift noose. He fells it, crashing to the floor, refusing to die. He writhes his way out of the sheets and attempts to crawl toward the door, but the men are too quick, too strong. Again, you look wildly down the hall in both directions. Someone needs to come and stop this. You want to get a nurse, but no one is paying attention to you. People walk by, everyone in their own world. It's like you're the only one seeing this. It's like you're losing your mind. The bullies are agitated now. They're yelling at Dean, angry that he's still alive. You cover your ears and try to drown the screaming. You yell to Dean to run! They're moving the furniture now. What are they doing? One of them has Dean pinned down and the other one lifts up the bed and places one of the legs on top of his head, immobilizing him. You try to go to Dean's aid, but your legs won't move. You're powerless. They climb on the bed and begin jumping up and down, over and over again. Dean's skull is crushed, squished like a grape. He's dead instantly. And yet they keep jumping. You watch in horror, frozen. The blood, the gray matter, the teeth, shards of bones. Dean is spilling out everywhere. You scream at them, monsters, murderers. They finally stop. As they exit the room and walk past you, you curl up into a ball, shaking, crying. You didn't do one thing to save Dean. A nurse comes by and grabs your hand. You look at her like you're looking at someone underwater, hazy, soft-focused. She tells you it's time to see the doctor now. You shake your head, protesting. You try to explain to her what happened to Dean, but it feels like marbles in your mouth. The words don't make any sense. Nothing makes any sense anymore. As she pulls you onto a gurney and straps you in, it dawns on you that this may be just what you need. 
Maybe you can erase what you have just seen. Maybe this will finally bring you peace. Dean is one of the most commonly seen ghosts at the asylum. He is also one of the only specters that people know by name. Dean is a skittish ghost. He often appears as a full-bodied man, crouching, cowering, ducking out of sight if you get too close. He's always seen in the room where he was murdered. But he is unlike the malevolent, violent specters. Dean is just looking for peace. He's hard to communicate with. Ghost hunters have tried to make contact with him and ask him questions. But instead of answering, he flits about, as if perpetually trying to flee his attackers. Dean is just one of many whose lives ended in tragedy here. A young man whose future was destroyed because of institutional negligence. Dean's suffering spirit begs us for help to this very day. Maybe someday he will get it. Trans-Allegheny wasn't only used for locking up unseemly and unsavory people. Surprisingly, it was also a pillar of the community. The building was rented out for proms, weddings, and local town halls. Events that required a large space were held in a separate building on the expansive grounds, just next to the madness and mayhem. And while these festivities were always kept away from the throngs of patients being abused and subject to inhumane treatment, madness and insanity were always lurking around the corner, sometimes in the next building over. There was a separate building from the main structure, and it was used to house the violent women. They had an all-female staff as well. So it was terrifying one night when a man was reported in the ward. There he was, lurking against the wall. A group of female patients grew distressed, staring at him from across the room. He was watching them, flanked against the wall. They cried out for help, desperate, hysterical. They needed this menacing presence out of their ward. Finally, a few nurses arrived to calm the patients down. No one took their accusations seriously, as people were always seeing things around these parts, particularly the ones in this ward, prone to delusional outbursts, aggressive displays. But this time, the staff members weren't expecting the women to be right. Sure enough, there was a man in the shadows of the ward. The nurses told him to step forward. They demanded to know what he was doing in an off-limits area. He must have gotten in from another ward. With the overpopulation, sometimes one could wander out of the less observed section of the hospital. When the man didn't respond, the nurses rushed to call security. There's an unidentified man in the women's ward. The building was surrounded. Security swept the place. Shockingly, 
the man was no longer anywhere to be seen. Not only that, the man couldn't possibly have gotten in. Security confirmed that everything was locked, tight. No windows open. No way anyone could have entered and made their way to the back of the ward. The nurses had begun to see the spirits too. The ghosts arrived well before the asylum had shut down. Sightings of Civil War-era ghosts have been pervasive throughout the entirety of the asylum's run. No one can say if these apparitions were disembodied men who were stationed here during the war, when it was used as a base for both the Union and Confederate armies, or if they are the spirits of men who came here, traumatized and shell-shocked after the war. Men who lived out their days in a fugue state of PTSD and war-stained nightmares. But the haunting of the building was not what scared people out. The state of West Virginia intervened in 1994 on behalf of the patients. Inspectors politely described it as dirty and unkempt. But it was a substandard cesspool where patients and workers were raped, tortured, and murdered. In 1985, the Charleston Gazette wrote an expose detailing the appalling state of affairs. Patients were naked and, quote, confined to dirty wards with bathrooms smeared with feces. And yet, it still took almost 10 more years to finally close the doors on this horrifying asylum. It wasn't until there were several more patient-on-patient murders and another undiscovered decomposing body before they were at long last shut down. What started in 1864 as an ambitious exercise in moral treatment quickly descended into a tragic case study, into what happens when the inmates take over the asylum. The closure of the asylum marked a societal turn toward the more humane treatment of people with mental illness and the more stringent examination of what qualifies mental illness in the first place. In addition, higher sanitation codes enforced meant this building was no longer the standard bearer in physical or mental health by any stretch of the imagination. Hopefully, the restless spirits of the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum find their peace, find their justice, and in the meantime, express their truth to the willing visitors. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. 
We'll see you next week. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It's a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Gina Machusik. I'm Greg Polson.